Welcome, everyone, to Strictly Anime, a podcast for anime reviews and discussions. My name is Courtney. And I am Carl. This is episode 153, and we're reviewing Howl's Moving Castle. As always, there'll be spoilers throughout this episode. Howl's is the one of the two Ghibli films that I have wanted to watch for a very long time. The other one being Princess Mononoke, which we already reviewed. So this is kind of like the last, not the last hurrah Ghibli film for me, but the one that I've like, you know, wanted to check off my list for quite some time. Yeah, I'm kind of glad that we've finally got around to watching this movie uh, because I have a sort of a childhood memory attached to this. Uh, I've never seen Howl's Moving Castle, but most of you, you might know that I took piano lessons when I was younger. And I think around the time that this movie came out, which was 2004, a lot of students at the music school that I attended for lessons, uh, I, all the like young weebs would want to play this song. And I never knew the name of it, uh, but I thought it was a, a beautiful melody, like the... But... Yeah, I didn't realize it was from an anime film until maybe a couple of years later where I, where I finally asked a student, like, what, who composed this? Like, I was, I thought it was like a, a famous musical composer, but then they tell me, oh, it's, it's from this anime film called Howl's Moving Castle. And when we started watching it, of course, the movie opens, I think, with that that classic tune or the uh the the melody and you're kind of like uh you kind of like grunted (laughs) i think it brought back some memories (laughs) yeah because again i heard that song ad nauseum at the school from all of the the weeb musicians who wanted to learn it on piano uh and it was just kind of funny because you hear the motif that throughout the whole film and uh, I, I started getting sick of it again. But <laughs> all that aside, it's still a beautiful melody. But um, yeah, I guess now it's great to have context behind it. Well, before we dive any further into Howl's Moving Castle, because I'm sure we have a lot to say about the movie, um, you recently finished an anime, right? Magical Destroyers. Yes, I'm still working through my spring anime list. Um, and you know, one of the few anime that I've completed from the spring now is Magical Destroyers, also known as Maho Shoujo. Uh, and the reason that I got into this anime is because the character designs for it, it's an original anime, but the character designs were done by someone named Jun Inagawa, who is this Japanese DJ. Uh, he is affiliated with uh, Atarashigako, which is one of my favorite Japanese music groups. And so I decided to give this a watch. It's basically about a, a dystopian near-future Japan where Akihabara and all of the, I guess, otaku central areas in Japan have been destroyed because this governmental army is taking all of like otaku memorabilia otaku uh, fans and pretty much eliminating him under the guise of quote-unquote protecting the culture and so there's one rebel called the otaku hero who rises to the occasion to fight back and take back the culture 
and he is assisted by these three magical girls, who are, I guess, the eponymous magical destroyers, and uh, because of their special abilities, um, he's able to make significant leaps in, in victory against this this army. Uh, it's it's an interesting concept, and I th- originally I thought it was a, a show that was going to sort of parody and lampoon otaku culture, which it does to a certain point, um, but a lot of this is just kind of like like hallucinating a, a fever dream about about like anime and otaku culture, pop culture, Japanese culture. Um, so it's a very it was a very strange trip. But yeah, I, I was trying to look up the 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 rating I gave it on Mal. Um, I gave it a six out of ten, and the community score is around six point three six. So um, the show's just it's okay. Like the ending, I it, it was very open ended with how they wrapped up the story and learning about like who the the villain is in the bigger scheme of things it was kind of a letdown because it seemed more like someone had a personal gripe against the culture uh but yeah it was a, it was a decent show again i like to give original anime a try every season so this was one of those you say it's open ended do you think there's a potential for a second season I'm not sure. I mean, there there could be, but I, I feel like the way that the show ended was more like uh, continuing a, a legacy, for lack of better words, and to try not to spoil the show. Uh, but I, I guess it's framed in a way where it leaves an open door if they wanted to pursue a sequel season or even go into an OVA, which would be interesting uh, because with the magical girls, I think there's plenty more of their story that could be told. Uh, By the way, one of them is voiced by Fairuz Ai, who's of Jojo fame. Uh, She was Jolene in part six, Stone Ocean. Uh, And Otaku Hiro is voiced by Makoto Furukawa, who is the voice for Saitama in One Punch Man. So couple notable uh say you in this anime but i don't know even if they were to uh announce a second season i i don't think i'd, I'd give it a watch uh because i <laughs> the story was was decent but in the end it just wasn't my cup of tea so how many more spring anime do you have on your watch list that need to to finish um that's a good question i'm pulling up my mal listing again um, I have Ranking of Kings, which I know is just, it's kind of a spinoff. There's no, like, progression in the actual plot of Ranking of Kings with those, since uh, they're, like, a- anthology episodes. Uh, Heavenly Delusion. Oh, I think it's just those two. And then I wanted to watch Mashal, Magic and Muscles, but I put that on hold. Uh, actually, you gotta me... finish Heavenly Delusion. That one's yeah. great. I'm actually working through Heavenly Delusion now. I think I only watched one additional episode from where I left off. Uh, but was it 13 episodes? I think it it'll be easy to tackle. Because uh, yeah, you you were telling me about it how it gets really interesting 
towards the later half of that series. Yeah, and I have my theories on like what's going on in this show, but I can't. I want to tell you about them, but I can't do that till you finish. So let me know when you finish, and then I'll I'll talk your ear off about that. Yeah, and maybe I'll I'll give an update on it on the next episode or the episode after that. Well, I have an update from my end, and it was a guest appearance that I had recently on Anime Summit. I believe the episode should be out by the time this episode goes live, but um, Sam and Danny invited me and Amelia from Otaku Host Club podcast to join them on an Anime Summit for a Girls Talk episode. It was a lot of fun. I didn't know what to expect going into it because there really wasn't a specific topic in mind. It was just sort of an open discussion um, with the four of us about, I don't know, girl talk type of things. But we ended up talking a lot about um, like anime, of course, manga. Um, we talked a lot about like BL because... I am still kind of tapping into BL um, and we talked about like lewd stuff. So yeah, I think it was a good conversation overall. And um, normally Carl is in the room with me manning the like the audio stuff just in case like something goes awry. He's there to, you know, keep an eye on everything. But this time you were with our little boy. Mm -hmm. So you don't even know what we talked about. So you'll have to tune in as well. So I'm allowed to, to listen in on this podcast. <laughs> <laughs> Everyone's allowed to listen in. I actually talked about you a few times on that episode. Oh, now I, I don't know if I want to listen. All good and funny things. <laughs> okay, I'll, I'll give it a listen. And for anyone else who's interested in listening as well, you can head over to Anime Summit. I believe it's an Anime Summit Extra episode. Again, it should be live as of when this episode's going live. Um, so just take a look um, and find the Girl Talk episode that has my name on it. So yeah, it was a fun discussion and hopefully you guys enjoy it. So now getting into Howl's Moving Castle. Like I said before, it was one of the Ghibli films I was most eager to watch, mostly because I thought that Hal was like kind of hot. Um, and <laughs> hey, I don't know, like of all the Ghibli guys, like he's he's like top tier, I think. No, it's all about Ashitaka from Princess Mononoke. I mean, yes, he's also he up there. my guy. He's also up there. <laughs> <laughs> uh, but yeah, I've, I'm glad I finally can say that I've seen Howl's Moving Castle. I actually thought it was older than it, it actually is. I didn't realize that the movie came out not that long ago, although 2004 is like long ago as of right now. Yeah, I think it's just a millennial thing where we think things that happened in like the 2000s were just like 10 years ago. But they're not. <laughs> and it, it just makes you feel feel more depressed. <laughs> um, but yeah, I was just reading up on some of the history about Howl's Moving Castle. I didn't know that this is actually an adaptation of a novel written by Diana Wynne Jones. I didn't know that either. Is no. that is it like a common thing with Ghibli? I feel like it's not. Like normally they're so. their own story. Yeah, I feel like of the ones that we've watched are original stories by the studio. But Miyazaki, I think, went in a different direction with this one. Um, but yeah, it, it, it was a novel first, but there are slight differences in the movie version in order to fit some of Miyazaki's themes, the themes that he wanted to explore, which at the time... 
I guess this film was his response to the 2003 U.S. invasion of Iraq, which makes a little bit of sense because there is a a, a military conflict in this film. Um, but yeah, I didn't realize that this film came out so recently because I too thought this was something like along the lines of, uh, well, Spirited Away was, I think, 2001. But I, I thought this film came out way before that. I'm just going to come out and say this, though. Um, and it's something that's not new. I've said this about other Ghibli films, but I think it holds true pretty much for most of the Ghibli films that we've seen. I enjoyed this movie, but I I just feel like sometimes Ghibli films lack a clear story, maybe even a cohesive story. Like, yeah. I felt that way leaving this movie. I was like, I really enjoyed it, but I think the the base of the story it's like you know this um this woman meets howl um in an unexpected way um and through their time together you know develops feelings for him um but his safety is at risk because he's you know trying to stop the war that's breaking out um and it's her love for him that ultimately saves him and saves herself from the curse right like i i understand what the story is but watching it at, there's always those moments again with a lot of the ghibli films that we've seen where i'm sitting there kind of waiting for like the true story to kick in it's like the the pre-stuff always blends so like almost too seamlessly with the main story where i'm like okay wait is this like set up or is this main story <laughs> and it just feels like things are happening um but then when i go back and reflect on what i watched i'm like okay I think I understand like what the story was intended to be, even if it wasn't super clear in the way it was delivered in the movie. Does that make sense? No, I pretty much had the same feelings. I, I thought this film was very reminiscent of Princess Mononoke, the last Miyazaki film that I, I think we reviewed, right? Um, like, you, like you said, there are scenes that kind of feel more stitched together rather than really being cohesive to the plot progression until the climax. And there are characters in here that have moral compasses that are left ambiguous throughout the film, kind of like in, I think also in Princess Mononoke, because that was a discussion point we had for for that movie. But I, I think it's, looking at it, it was almost like there are a series of things happening in this film right um and that i mean yeah by the end of it howl kind of reaches a a, a pivotal moment in his character development and then everything ends up fine and dandy but it was just like like i i enjoyed this film i think i felt more invested in this film like watching it than some of the other miyazaki films that we've watched but by the end of it I was thinking, did Sophie really do anything to light a fire under Howl and like the way that he he changed had like a change of heart? Right, because I I, I felt similar. So again, like I I think it's a theme with a lot of Ghibli films, like stuff just happens, and then there's like a a, a, a story that forms kind of within all of that, but you have to kind of like I don't know reflect on it to understand what it is. Um, and the romance in this, I think, is one of the things where I'm like, something just happened, but I didn't see 
how it got to this point because mm-hmm. you know towards what the middle to the end of the film sophie confesses her feelings for how and i'm like wait when was their romantic development because she was like in her old lady form pretty much up until that moment because she woke up and happened to not be in that old lady form um so where was the romantic development also she didn't spend a lot of time with him at least not on screen because he was always off fighting in the war or always off trying to stop the war mm-hmm. right like he would come back sporadically so i'm just wondering like when was there even time to get to know each other and to have that romance develop so that's kind of the thing where i'm like stuff just happens sometimes in these ghibli films and that's you know one of those examples that i have i also feel like there were certain things in this movie like parts of it where it was kind of like dismissive <laughs> i don't know how to explain this but uh, especially specifically with the 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 witch uh, the witch of the waste I think she was called um, and I get like her character too it is an example of this theme of moral ambiguity because she ends up like at first she's seems like this villainous character and then all of a sudden she has an about face uh, but it's just weird that you know like, Sophie kind of glosses over all of the the sort of <laughs> the sort of war crimes that she commits uh, in this film. Uh, the other thing was like like the ending where, and I'm sure we'll, we'll get into this a little bit later, where it's kind of like the war just ends and that's, we just have to accept that. Like I didn't, I didn't really understand why <laughs> it, it just wrapped up so, so neatly. Uh, but I, yeah, there were certain aspects of this film that, that felt like, this is what happens and then we'll just move on yeah again like it's just stuff just happens (laughs) um without any real lead up or consequence afterwards but on the positive side i fucking love the environments i love the environments in this film i love the colors i love the music like the world was just so cool it might be one of my favorites right behind um spirited away like just a mm. really fucking cool world that i was so absorbed in i love the way everything looked everything the way everything sounded it was great and i love how like how just sort of like embodied that same grand nature of the world within himself like i think he was a great match to the environment around him even you know his moving castle we don't see a ton of it but the parts that we do see feel very like rinky dink but grand at the same time because you know this whole fucking thing is moving because of the um the magical like contract that he has with the the fire devil or whatever it is yeah calcifer yes um i think i was most impressed uh, by the castle itself. Uh, it, you know, it's funny that you say, oh, this is the best animation I've seen of the Miyazaki film so far, which is, I guess that makes sense because chronologically, this is the most recent of the films that we have reviewed. Because, <laughs> uh, yeah, Spirited Away was three years prior, um, and then Mononoke, and then Totoro before that. Uh, but, yeah, I love just watching the castle move and we didn't pause too much of the movie because, um, you know, we, we had to also check on our baby every now and then. Uh, but I wish I could have paused on the parts where the castle was in view because of just how intricate everything was, like how yeah. detailed 
um, every space of it, like how much attention the animators put into making this castle pretty much come to life. Um, and I know it, it was probably you, like I'm sure there was some CGI use there to, in order to make all of these parts move, but it never really felt like I was watching CGI animation. Like it, it felt like this castle was moving by means of magic on the screen. I also really love Howl himself. I know we'll talk a little bit more about characters um, when we dive into this, like in detail. But I loved Howl. I thought he was great. Like he just—he obviously stole the show. Stole the show because of his personality. Um, but yeah, I really enjoyed him. And to I guess to really preface all of this, even though it's not the preface, <laughs> uh, we did end up watching this subbed. So mm -hmm. we took some time to decide between watching this dubbed or sub because both have like amazing casts. You've got Christian Bale on the dub side. Yeah. Which is pretty pretty awesome. And then you've got Takuya Kimura, who's like one of my favorite Japanese celebrities. Like he's an actor, but he's done other things as well. I really like him a lot. Um, so he's Howl on the sub side. We ended up going with sub because we watched some clips of the dub. And I personally did not enjoy the dub for Sophie. But then on top of that, <laughs> there were moments with Christian Bale as like Howl in his like demon, his like, you know, demon form or whatever sounded like Batman. <laughs> yeah. I, I thought that was interesting. I mean, yeah, like out of context, it's like, why is Christian Bale doing this weird as a voice? But I, I feel like, that was his inspiration for the voice that he uses in the Dark Knight trilogy. I can't believe I'm making a Dark Knight reference in this episode. <laughs> uh, but yeah, I was blown away finding out that Christian Bale was involved in the dub version of this movie. Uh, because not to say that like anime would like an anime film would be beneath him, but I just wouldn't expect to see him in this sort of like cinematic medium and the dub cast is like star studded for sure you've got isn't isn't billy crystal in this yeah he plays calcifer uh josh hutcherson who's Peta yeah from the hunger games what the fuck <laughs> yeah he plays markle um i'm not too familiar with uh, a lot of the other actors on the dub side, although I see D. Bradley Baker was involved too. He's a prolific American voice actor. Um, so, yeah, this was it. Was, like listening to those clips of the dub, which, by the way, I think it was Gamespot that posted it, this, and it was kind of coincidental since we were watching Howls at the same time that these came up recently. But I think it's because uh, Miyazaki's last film purportedly his last film the boy and the heron is about to make its way uh stateside for a theatrical premiere um but yeah i think once i heard the the voice of sophie in the dub much as you did like i i was like no let's let's go to the sub <laughs> yeah it was a tough decision because i know that there are other really good dubs within ghibli films but um, this one I think had the most potential, but yeah, ultimately we went sub, um, and I enjoyed it. I thought the sub was great and Takuya Kimura is awesome as always. 
Yeah, some other notable VA in the sub really quick. Uh, Markle is voiced by Ryunosuke Kamiki, whom you m- might recognize in a lot of Makoto Shinkai films, or two in particular. Uh, he was Taki Tachibana in Your Name and Tomoya Serizawa in Suzume, who was Sota's college friend. Oh, okay. But obviously, he's not recognizable in this role because he was much younger at the time. Uh, but cool to see that he has a trajectory in anime films. And then the king of, I guess the kingdom was called Ingeri. Uh, he is voiced by Akio Otsuka, who is the voice of Wamu in Jojo Part 2, Thorkel in Vinland Saga, or Thorkel? Thorkel? Thorkel. Thorkel in Vinland Saga. And I didn't realize this. He's the voice of Solid Snake or all the versions of Snake in Metal Gear Solid. Yeah, I caught that one. I was like, hey, that sounds like Wamu. (laughs) Very small part, but I was like, hey, it's Wamu. One last random thing before we get into our proper uh, synopsis and discussion. I didn't realize. So I I, like, you know, Howl has that unique, like distinct jacket that he wears uh, with like the diamond pattern and blue or or pink i kept getting that confused before after watching hunter hunter with the character shower poof i thought you're gonna say hisoka (laughs) no (laughs) uh because yeah i'm pretty sure both of those characters they they have blonde hair they wear a white shirt and like shower poof has his his butterfly wings and i thought that was the pattern because like people would wear this at like conventions uh, as a jacket, or, like Howl's jacket, at, at, like as part of their outfit, and I just thought it was a way for them to like casual cosplay as shower poof. And then I watched this movie, and then I realized, oh, they're two different characters. Wait, yeah, shower poof doesn't even have like the diamond pattern. Do, uh, does it? I guess not. But no, I thought like that was the pattern but oh okay <laughs> yeah i'm right like i'm like i looked up a picture of sharp it, it, he has like a similar look to howl right yeah with the blonde hair i could see that to a certain degree but now it makes sense <laughs> there are two different cosplayers out there <laughs> one for howl and one for shower poof and the howl cosplayers have the neat jacket which is a cool design i, I think uh that one website where we get our anime cardigans from steady hands has a version of that as as a cardigan i'd love to wear it but i just don't like pink pink is my least favorite color so i will never i'll never wear it but i'll admire it from afar (laughs) all right strictly fam time to turn up your volume as we dive into our synopsis and discussion for howl's moving castle the 2004 Japanese animated fantasy film written and directed by Hayao Miyazaki. Produced by Studio Ghibli, it is loosely based on the 1986 novel of the same name by Diana Wynne-Jones. Once upon a time in a nondescript French steampunk town, a young hat maker named Sophie I gets caught up in a magical tussle after meeting the enchanting wizard named Hooten Howell and getting cursed by his nemesis, the Wicked Witch of the Waste, by becoming Sophie the Senior. A kind old scarecrow takes Sophie down the not-yellow-not-brick road to Hooten Howell's Moving Castle Emporium, where she becomes a part of the residence's cleaning staff in an attempt to break the curse. 
we learn that the nondescript French steampunk kingdom has been trying to reach Hooten Howl about his castle's extended warranty and for his support in their nondescript war. Howl sends Sophie the senior to the palace to say no because he's too chicken shit to do it himself. But her audience with the crown's chief enchantress goes far from Monon okay as Howl ends up absconding with Sophie, a wickedly weakened wicked witch of the waste, and a walking carpet. Sophie the Senior later learns that the Hooten Howl's chief pyrotechnics engineer, Calcifer, has a piece of the boy's hole, and that her n- <laughs> <laughs> and that her nondescript French steampunk town has now been added as both a fast travel spot and a battlefield in the manhunt for Howl. Sophie has Calcifer destroy the castle before building it up again as a protective measure because that makes absolute fucking sense. But the weakened Wicked Witch of the Waste steal Calcifer's boy's hole and sends Sophie into the climax of Christopher Nolan's Interstellar, seeing a past vision of Howl agreeing to Calcifer's castle employment contract. Sophie the Senior returns to the present as Sophie the First, with her aging curse finally broken because it wasn't already broken earlier in the movie when the Wicked Witch of the Waste lost her magical powers, but what do I know? Calcifer returns himself to Hooten Howl as the boy's hole, the Scarecrow turns out to be the prince who basically caused the war in the first place, but becomes a changed man after a kiss from Sophie, and the crown's chief enchantress decides to call off the war because it's the end of the movie, it doesn't even fucking matter anymore. And so it's happily ever after for Sophie and Howell as they begin their new business venture together as Hooten Howell's Flying Castle Emporium. So let's start with characters. Let's talk through some of these key characters because you kind of hinted at a few of my thoughts um, in your synopsis. <laughs> um, who do we want to start with? Do we want to start with Sophie? Sure. I thought Sophie was decent. But, okay, so, you know, as I was contemplating or like reflecting on this movie after we watched it, I actually stumbled upon a film review by one of my favorite movie critics, Roger Ebert, um, especially because he is a, a Chicago-based or was a Chicago-based film critic. Uh, he passed away many years ago. And he did a review of Howl's Moving Castle, but he gave it two and a half stars out of four. Interesting. Yeah. And he's, he's a big fan of uh, Miyazaki films. But I think one of the things he said in his review is that Sophie feels more like a bystander in everything that's going on rather than someone who's like actively a protagonist. And that's kind of the feeling I got in this one where she's kind of seeing things happen. And I guess I was going to say in the, in the climax where she sees the vision of Howl and Calcifer, I don't know if that's where things start to click in place with her having an active role in everything. Uh, I mean, there was the lead up to that where she has Calcifer destroy the castle and then rebuild it again, <laughs> which is still a part I don't really understand. But yeah, it sometimes difficult to see Sophie as a main character um, and as a catalyst for some of the things happening in the movie. Yeah, like she didn't have a lot of drive to her, which I get is intentional. Like Sophie is meant to be a very plain woman um like that's her character like she's she's around all these very eccentric women who um you know have very bubbly personalities but she's more of a quiet reserved simple individual 
and that's totally fine. And I think that's kind of the idea is like you're pairing your opposite opposites are attracting because you're pairing up Sophie, who is more of a simple individual um, with someone who is more like over the top and and eccentric in and of himself with, you know, that being Howell. Um, But with Sophie, it's it's tough because I, I kind of agree. She doesn't do much and she doesn't have the drive to want to do much other than clean. Like that's really mm-hmm. her her main drive. She doesn't even have the drive to break the curse. She's kind of like, well, I'm old and I'll just deal with it and I'll figure it out when I when I get the chance, but you know, I'll, I'll just deal with being old and whatever. Like it's mm-hmm. nice that she's unbothered by things, but I almost wish that she was more bothered by it. Um cuz she does get bothered by it when she sees the wicked witch of the waste or whatever. It's the witch of, <laughs> it's the witch of the waste. I just It's going to it's going to it's going to keep ringing in my head like wicked witch of the west, but witch of the waste or whatever. Um she's like, "Hey, can you break my fucking curse? Like can we not be doing this right now?" And that's great, but it's only when she sees her does that happen. There's no drive mm-hmm. to like try and track her down really. Um, she may say that she's going to, but does she really know? Like she's spending a, a vast majority of the time at Howell's castle cleaning and like keeping everything tidy and experiencing the world outside of the world that she knew in her small town. I guess the unique thing with Sophie compared to the other characters in this movie is as I mentioned before, uh, the characters in this, uh, they have ambiguous motivations and they can kind of switch sides. Um, so you're, you're not always sure if one character is going to be a protagonist or an antagonist. But I think Sophie is kind of the constant in everything in that she's always compassionate. She always has this heart for people. Um, especially like I'm thinking specifically of when she defends Howl uh, when she's having that audience with, uh, I think it was Suleiman was the name of the the enchantress in, in the king's court or whatever. Uh, so I know, I think that's that's kind of a catalyst that gets Howl to have that change of heart, even though I, I know I mentioned earlier that she's not really a catalyst for anything. Um, but uh, yeah, I think Sophie in, in that sense, I think it's her, her compassion, which I think that was a theme that Miyazaki wanted to emphasize compassion and also old age, because you normally don't see, uh, like elderly people as protagonists in these kinds of films, but kind of showing that, that gentle nature of her is what makes Sophie stick out from the other characters in this film. I know you probably want to talk about Howl. Hell yeah, I want to talk about Howl. He's hot, okay? <laughs> I wanted to talk about Turnip really quick. Okay, fine. We'll do that first. <laughs> like, I, I thought it was, Turnip as a scarecrow was a funny character because it's just this, this random magical thing that shows up, can't really verbally communicate, but is able to help Sophie out on her journey. And then it turns out to be the missing prince who again i think his 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 mia status is what is causing this whatever war that's going on um and i don't i don't know if it's it sits well with me that the movie doesn't explain how he became this scarecrow right he just kind of says like he had a curse of some sort yeah and i also don't like that the movie so we're we're diving into like story beats now um mm. 
so I mean, I, we could probably save our thoughts on like the actual ending, but like, yeah, turn up. I, I agree. As a scarecrow was like fun, which is like you know the fun little character, kind of like you know like the soot sprites in yeah. Spirited Away. Like they're just like fun little characters that I enjoy watching and just kind of give you like the warm fuzzy feelings. But then yeah, the, the ending hits, and I'm like, wait, what the fuck? <laughs> so we'll mm-hmm. we'll talk about that when we dive into the story. Um, but yeah, I know I liked the scarecrow. I thought it was like a a fun little addition to the team. I think it, his design is also one prominent, along with like Howl's jacket, that that's kind of synonymous with this film. Because I'm pretty sure I've seen this scarecrow on like merchandising and people cosplaying as turnip. It's just weird that it's translated as turnip as his as his name. But I'm looking, trying to look up. Uh, uh, it's turnip head on mail. Oh, is it? Uh, Kabu, I think, is his, his Japanese name, which, what does Kabu translate to? Maybe turnip. Oh, it does translate to turnip. <laughs> okay. Oh, I think calling him Kabu would would give him, I mean, he's a kind of a comedic character, but it would give him a little bit more legitimacy. <laughs> well, it's kind of like Ekubo in Mob Psycho. Oh yeah, it's dimple. Yeah, yeah, yeah. It is what it is. It's fine. He's he's turnip. <laughs> okay, let's talk about howl. Okay. Um, I'm gonna say it: black haired howl over blonde howl. Yeah, I, I like. I, I do think, like the black hair. Yeah, I think black haired howl is superior over blonde haired howl. Um, I know he doesn't like his regular hair. Uh, he freaks out when his blonde hair gets turned orange or whatever. But I think. His black hair is the best. Although he's kind of a, a vain character, kind of fickle in that one scene where he's like, I forget what he says, but something about having to be perceived as beautiful. Yeah. And like, that's, I don't know, Hal's so interesting. Like, he's the complete opposite of Sophie, um, which I'm sure is intentional. But Hal's like just the most over the top like protagonist that we've one of the most over the top protagonists that we've seen so far in in Ghibli films and I enjoyed him because he was just like stupid fun like he he's really strong and he's very capable but he's one of those characters who like his natural personality is more aloof is more goofy um so you can't really get a good read on him because you think he's probably not like that bright but then when it comes down to it like he is op like he is really strong um he's probably one of the strongest wizards out there um Mm. and he's doing something so self selfless and so um important trying to stop the war to save as many lives as possible so i like that dynamic that hal presents and I don't know. I just I enjoyed the comedic elements that he brought to the table. Like a lot of characters were funny characters, but his scenes were probably some of the most enjoyable. Like I know the um the hair dyeing scene was like really over the top and really dramatic in like a funny way. Um, uh, but I enjoyed it. Like I just it was so funny to see somebody who's so capable and so good at what they do act so childlike in that moment because he was so upset that his hair accidentally changed colors to the point where he started melting um and then was about to destroy everything although i do have a quick note about that 
Again, with like things happening randomly and the no real consequence to it. In that scene where Hal starts like melting and there's goo everywhere and he's like depressed or whatever about his hair, Sophie gets like pissed at him and he's like, she's like, well, I've never been beautiful ever and like storms out. She goes to the lake, looks at the lake for like two seconds and then she's like, uh, someone comes back out. Maybe it's Turnip or Markle or something. Comes mm-hmm. back out and says, you got to oh, right, help yeah. Howl. And she's like, oh, my gosh. Okay, I'll go back in. All of a sudden, she's like, she 180s. She like 180s one direction and then 180s back. And it's like, I'm going to be the one to save him. I'm going to help him. Let's get him upstairs. Let's get him back in the bathtub or whatever. And I'm like, so which is it? Why did you storm out like that and then immediately come back inside? Like that, the storming out part didn't seem very necessary. Because it's not like Sophie ever ever really cared about her looks to begin with. Yeah, I I don't know if that's just meant to show or go back to her her compassion. Like she can't stay mad at Howl for for too long for more than five seconds. <laughs> yeah. Um. Although I feel like Howl in some ways is also hot and cold because I think prior to this, um, he was almost like turned into that monster, right? Or like I had almost fully formed into it, and then he wakes up the next day feeling kind of fully refreshed and as if nothing had happened the the night before yeah that's true um i i took that as like he was able to rest and like suppress the change that was happening because again he is very powerful um but that that happened because when his hair turned black right like he came back and calcifer was like dude you're changing too fast and then mm-hmm. like it seemed like all hope was lost for him, but then the next morning he comes downstairs and his hair is black and he's like, I'm all Gucci. Yeah. Or maybe there was a different... There was a scene where his hair was orange. Yeah, that was the hair. Oh, that was scene. the... Okay, yeah. Unless, like, his hair turned black after that? I don't know. I don't remember now. Yeah, I, I'm not too sure. My, my notes are kind of scattered all over the place. Uh, but I guess the, the positive thing about how, like you said, is just him not wanting to use his his powers for the war cause like to use it in a, a detrimental way but rather as like being this sort of carefree free-spirited individual um, and just kind of surveying the battlefield and doing what he can to have like a positive impact rather than I guess rather than being like a, a machine for the kingdom like this this war machine yeah, and sorry, I just thought of something because I know we talked about like Howl being like childlike at times. I wonder if that's because he never really had a childhood because he made that contract with Calcifer. Mm. But I could be right. wrong. That was just a no. Thought. That makes sense. Like he's he's a grown man, right? But he has these childlike moments because he never really got to live a normal childhood. I don't know. Well, he. Or Suleiman says that Howl was her apprentice until a demon stole his heart. So I th- maybe it's because uh, again the, the movie's not clear about when that happened, but maybe like he was so d- done with Suleiman's bullshit that <laughs> the demon stealing his heart. I, I'm assuming that's his contract with Calcifer, and then that's what leads him to having this free-spirited nature uh again kind of going hand in hand with him not wanting to be used as a tool of war uh but for him to you know what this is like how's like um 
Michael Jackson. Like when? Huh? <laughs> Wait, what? <laughs> like all like the Neverland stuff, like Neverland Ranch. I know there's like some some wild shit about that. that I'm not gonna get into, <laughs> but how Michael Jackson always wanted to experience childhood again. Yeah, may I could see that. Or as we're talking it through, it could also be like how live he appears to be very carefree on the outside maybe because he doesn't want to worry the people who care about him because he's mm. he knows that he's going down this path where he's either going to die or he's going to turn into this beast and never be able to revert back. So yeah. instead he kind of brushes it off, um you know, puts that to the side even though it's a very ser- serious situation because he doesn't want to get anyone involved because he also doesn't tell anyone that he's going off to try to stop the war because Marco says in the beginning the black door like the black um part of the wheel mm-hmm. when it's on that part it's Howell going to and from someplace he doesn't even know. Like, Marco doesn't know. Like, we don't ask what that is. Howell doesn't tell us what that is. We don't go through that door. Yeah. Yeah, I, I, I can kind of see that. Speaking of Markle, we don't know anything about him. Where did he come from? Like, I know he, yeah. <laughs> he lives with Howell, but, like, why does he live with Howell? And how did he get involved with Howell? And I just, what's his deal? Like, I feel like they gave everyone else context except Markle. I have no clue what's going on with this kid. Yeah, did Howell kidnap him? Did <laughs> Howell like save him? Like take him into his fold? Yeah, like I don't understand what their relationship is. I know like he serves Howell, like he helps him out, like he seems to be his right hand man of sorts. Um, but I don't know anything besides that, anything at all. Yeah, I thought that Markle, kind of like Calcifer, who I know we haven't discussed yet as a character, like is uh, in some ways like he has a, a a debt to Howl, which I know Calcifer is pretty much like a part of Howl's soul. I thought that was going to be the same thing for Markle, but no, it's just Markle is there, and I think it's mostly for like expository reasons for for Sophie's case, so that she has an understanding of how. And of the castle and of what Hal was trying to do. Yeah, I can see that. He's he's more just an opportunity, like a plot device almost. And then we have Calcifer himself, which I always think of uh, a calcium and Lucifer <laughs> mixed together. I don't know the, the significance behind the name. He is kind of confusing I guess like the the contract between him and Howell is a bit confusing for me. Like a lot of things, it's yeah, it's confusing. <laughs> um, like I get it. Like their their contract. Okay, well maybe I don't get it. Like their contract is like their lives are intertwined. So if one of them dies, they both die. But mm. what benefit does Calcifer have? Because now he's stuck as like the furnace for this entire castle. <laughs> he basically runs the entire castle. Yeah, but then what, so that's, that's Howell's benefit in this contract. Like his castle can keep moving forward and Calcifer sort of helps protect the castle and you know can, can see what's on the outside. Um, but what is Calcifer's benefit in this contract, right? Like what is his benefit? He's got mm-hmm. Howell's heart, but then what? He has to, oh, like, yeah. What's the what benefit to Calcifer of Calci- being in yeah. this contract? Um, he can control this big ass castle. I don't, <laughs> I'm not too sure. <laughs> he was a funny character, though. I loved any time like they needed to move him from 
that like furnace area because he'd be like panicking the whole time. Um, I I liked him a lot. I thought he was goofy and and fun to watch. And he's, I want to say he's kind of drawn similarly to like the suit sprites that you see in other Ghibli films. Or maybe it's just more so the eyes. Yeah. Um, so I think yeah, he's more of like a a playful comedy relief character in all of this. So moving on to the story, um, again, we there's a lot of confusion here with what's going on in certain story beats. Again, I, I really enjoyed the movie overall, but as far as like understanding what was going on, there were pieces that sort of lost me. Like one of the first questions that comes to mind is why the war? I think at the end, like they, they basically hinted, and you said this earlier, um, that the war was started because of the missing prince, but... Mm-hmm. I don't think that was ever really established at any point before the ending of the movie. It's just kind of like war is brewing. You see people like you hear people talking about it in the beginning. You see people reading newspapers that say like war, war is coming. Um, then the war starts to escalate. And then we're in the thick of it. Um, so, yeah, it's just like the war is happening for whatever reason. And I think this is one of the things that Miyazaki wanted to touch upon with war, like his viewpoint that war is kind of pointless. Um, And that's why the conflict is just so nondescript that you can't really figure out from the characters or from the random townsfolk exactly why this war is being fought. Uh, But then you're shown these, these grand battles like with the aircraft coming in and and, like the scenes of destruction uh, and that sort of just you get enveloped in that but you as a viewer don't understand like it's it's hard to really understand why that makes sense um and finding out that the war was started because of some prince was who was like turned into a scarecrow um seemed kind of like not dumb but was like oh okay so that's the whole point of the war maybe mm. that's the idea is when you do realize what the war is about it is for a silly reason um if they had just worked together to locate the prince versus fighting each other then you know there would have been probably a better outcome they probably would have found the prince faster and not have to sacrifice so many lives I know I touched on this a bit earlier uh, when it comes to like the romance and the relationship developing between Sophie and Howell. Um, how did you feel about all that? Like, if you think about Sophie's journey as a whole, um, she ends up accidentally at Howell's castle after meeting him um, momentarily in the beginning. Like, do you feel like the like Sophie meeting Howell in the beginning played any real significance other than her realizing that that is the Howell that everybody talks about. And do you feel like there was enough romantic development? Cause I know I didn't feel that way, but did you feel like there was enough romantic development to warrant the, the confession that we get mid film? And then of course them becoming Canon at the end. Not really. Maybe like in the first half, I felt like how always filtered, in and out of the castle and that Sophie didn't really have many scenes with him. I mean, it's been a couple days since we've watched the film, so I can't remember it offhand. Uh, I mean, there was the part where Hal brought Sophie to his summer home and that's where they established more of an intimate connection. 
but I don't. Yeah, I I think the the romantic connection was downplayed a bit in this movie compared to something like in Princess Mononoke between um, Ashitaka and well, what was her name? <laughs> what was her name in the film? Mononoke? No, I'm kidding. It's not Mononoke. <laughs> Hime? Oh, God. Hime? No. <laughs> no. <laughs> oh, God. Hold on. Sorry, everyone. I need to look this up, otherwise it's going to bother me. Um, San. <laughs> there, we, there you go. Between Ashitaka and San. And I honestly think that the main characters of Spirited Away had a stronger relationship than Howl and Sophie. Taku and... Chihiro. Yes. <laughs> Thank you. Um, yeah, I, I don't know. Like, I just... Again, it feels like suddenly Sophie falls in love. Like, I, I get that she was meant to fall in love with him and that they're meant to be together. And there's even a point towards the end where Howl says, like, I'm like doing this for you. I want to protect you or whatever. Like, you're my motivation to keep going but i'm like when did that happen is like old lady Mm. sophie the motivation or is it like sophie her current state like the younger sophie and your love for her that's the motivation maybe it's just he he recognizes again her her compassionate nature and that's what he is drawn to and i think this is kind of coupled with how Throughout the movie, Sophie kind of teeters between like being her younger self and her older self. Uh, the first instance I remember is uh, that that audience with Suleiman, where she's defending Howl, and as she's defending Howl, she's slowly reverting back to her old, like to her true self, basically. And then again, when I think they're at the maybe in the hometown or i can't remember when there was a maybe it was the summer home scene where she also was like in between her old and younger self but like every time it's it's has a connection with howl that's where she shows like her true self yeah let's talk about the curse a little bit more um i liked that part of the movie i thought that was a very unique situation for sophie to be in mostly because again she didn't seem too bothered by it like the majority of the time Mm. but i was trying to pinpoint what is the catalyst for her curse um and i i feel like it's twofold i feel like it's her love for howl but it's also it also seems to be her level of confidence like when she becomes more confident in herself she seems to revert back to her younger, normal version. Mm-hmm. Um, I don't know if maybe I'm just mis- misreading those scenes, but yeah, I feel like it's a combination of those two things because going back to the example of her audience with Solomon, um, when she does stand up for Hal, it's not only the love, but it's also the confidence, the way she speaks very confidently and very um, like pointed about Hal. Like she knows mm-hmm who he is and kind of defends him in that moment. And that's when she switches back suddenly. Yeah. I can see it coupled with her, her self-esteem, I guess in in that sense. But to your earlier point, um, I think in your synopsis, does the curse never break? Because it doesn't seem to break when the witch of the waste loses her powers. But then by Mm. the end of the film, I think her hair is still white. So does she never break the curse does she just learn to live with it 
No, I think the curse breaks by the end of the film. I just don't know, like, how exactly. Um, uh, I'm trying to... Sophie's curse is broken. I think it's when Howl is reunited with his heart through Calcifer. Somehow that is what causes uh, her to revert back to her true self, but then she <laughs> she keeps her white hair as some sort of consolation prize or something. Yeah, I guess the white hair threw me off. I was like, maybe she didn't actually break the curse then, but it sounds like she, she did. And then another question I have is does Hal realize what's going on with her curse this whole time? Because there is that moment where he returns home, opens the curtain and sees a young Sophie sleeping there before until she wakes up. And then suddenly she reverts back to her old self. So like with that, him seeing that and him not saying anything about it, does he realize that there's a curse and maybe just wants to let her work that out herself? Mm. Or does he realize there's a curse and isn't, aware of how to break it so he doesn't say anything um that kind of left me a bit confused yeah i don't know what to think of it i mean part of me thinks like he knows this is associated with the witch of the waste but i don't know if that really matters in the the bigger scheme of things um i would say it's maybe more of him wanting Sophie to go on a personal journey and to because I think she was trying to like I know it wasn't like a a a very significant goal for her but I think she wanted to find a way to break the curse so maybe it was just more so like she has to find that reason on her own or like that the way to do so on her own I mean it makes sense that like he wants to give Sophie or show Sophie like the summer home and all these things because he knows what her true self looks like and he knows what would like who her true self is um but he never really says anything to her or never really offers to help try to break the curse so that's kind of where I was like wait does he know does he realize what's going on or is he just like oh she's young well okay <laughs> Well, let's talk about the the person who who brought on the curse, the witch of the waste, which I know we didn't bring up in the character section, but I think it's because she's more significant plot wise. So she put the curse on Sophie because she wanted how to be less obsessed over her. So my understanding is like the witch of the waste has some sort of determination when it comes to Hal, either for Hal to be interested in her or to have Hal's heart because that's what she's right. kind of after mm. the whole time. But she may see that his heart metaphorically could potentially go to Sophie because she just saw Sophie hanging out with him, right? So she's like, oh, maybe that's his new like, you know, side piece or whatever. Mm. <laughs> so I think the wicked, the wicked witch of the way, the wicked witch the of, witch the, of waste the waste <laughs> got jealous of, in some way, shape or form and wanted to get at Howl by, you know, cursing the woman that she saw him with. Um, so that's why she did what she did. But of course she can't, she can place the curse, but doesn't know how to break it. Even when her powers get stolen by Solomon and she just becomes like this, this like really old she becomes lady. her true self right which what a, a turn of a turn of tables there um compared to sophie 
But it is weird that the the Witch of the Waste does this and, you know, just gets just joins the family when she's like old yeah and like again i get sophie's compassionate but sophie was like fucking pissed at the witch when they ran into each other on their way up the stairs to solemn to see the king or whatever but by the way that stair scene like talk about like it was a great scene but so fucking funny it was so (laughs) dragged out with that like it's almost like a Maybe like a like a JoJo thing where you have this intense scene and it's taking place over something really monotonous, but then it's it's this battle of climbing the stairs between the both of them, <laughs> which again it's so stupid, but I think it was it was brilliant. And so yeah, I feel like Sophie was angry about the curse, but then when mm-hmm. she sees what happens to the Witch of the Waste when Solomon like tricks her or whatever, she becomes more compassionate towards her because now she can't do anything, right? Like she's lost yeah. all her powers. She can't do anything. She's just like oh, this old lady. So then she's like, okay, well, we'll take you in. We'll care for you. We'll protect you. We'll save you. Um, and I, again, I get Sophie's compassionate, but I'm kind of like, damn, that's like that's a major forgiveness right there. Mm-hmm. And then the, the witch reverts back to her old ways in the end by still being enamored and, and obsessed with uh, Howl and his heart. And that causes Sophie to fall into the chasm. But again, Sophie just kind of brushes that off uh, afterwards and says, it's okay. And then they all live happily ever after. Um, I mean, I, I, I was kind of hoping that the witch would get her just desserts. But I think this also just plays into the theme of moral ambiguity with characters. And, you know, like even though the witch basically caused Sophie's quote-unquote misery in the beginning. Uh, she still deserves to be a human being, I guess. Well, yeah, I, it's interesting that, like, no one suffers consequences in this film. Mm-hmm. Like, the I think the Witch of the Waste is probably the closest to suffering consequences because her powers get taken away, but she still ends up in a pretty decent spot where she's, like, taken care of. Right, like she's yeah. she's got people who care about her and who are protecting her, um, and even with the war, kind of to your earlier point, like the war just sort of ends at the end. Is there a consequence for the people who started the war? No, but I think that's intentional, right? Like these people, these kingdoms chose to start this war over what seems to be a misunderstanding of sorts, mm-hmm. and people, you know, are, are killed in the process, but the war just sort of ends, and we don't see a consequence for the people who desi- who decided to start the war. Instead, we see innocent lives being taken. They they bear the consequence of this decision, mm-hmm. which I think is part of that commentary that Miyazaki is trying to make about war, that at the end of the day, the people who are deciding to move forward with war don't actually face any consequences. It's all the innocent lives that get taken along the way. But now let's talk about the endings. I know that the ending just kind of comes out of nowhere and it's like, wait, like a lot of things just wrap up and then that's it. Um, of course, we have turn up turning from the scarecrow into the prince. And I was like, what? <laughs> like, who are you? Where'd you come from? <laughs> mm-hmm. um, yeah, it was, it was just weird that he it was, what was it? He, he said that he was only able to revert back to his old self. Um, after getting his true love's kiss, which that threw me off because then I was like, oh, well, Sophie kissed you, so she's your true love, but then she's in love with Howl, but then you're okay with that? 
And so you're just going to go and, and tell everyone to stop the war like I'm here. <laughs> like, <laughs> I don't know. It was, that was like too neatly wrapped up in a bow for me to to accept. And I know I've made many comparisons to this previous Miyazaki film, but I feel like Princess Mononoke also kind of wrapped up loose ends really quickly. But I, I don't know if I think, I don't know if I feel that Howl's Moving Castle, the way that it ends, if it's comparatively, quote, uh, uh, comparatively worse. <laughs> <laughs> well, then you also have Howl getting his heart back. So like mm. they're like the the castle's falling apart, uh, which by the way we, we you mentioned a few times for some reason Sophie has Calsford destroy the castle and then immediately is like please keep this castle together it's super tiny now but mm. you got to keep it together we need to get to where Hall is I'm like then why why did you have them break it in the first place I, the only reason I could think of is that they needed to preserve magic mm. so they had Calsford break down the castle to make a smaller one. Um, it to be more agile and but speedy. But like, it barely. I mean, it barely got from point A to point B. Yeah. <laughs> um, so that happens. Uh, but yeah, so then like they, they get Howl's heart back after all the shit goes down where like the weight, I was going to say the Wicked Witch, the Witch of the Waste tries to take it back um, from Calcifer and then Sophie like splashes water on Calcifer, almost killing him and, you know, almost killing Howl. Um, but then Hal's like dying anyway because he's you know dealing with the the war and everything, and then Sophie's just like, bro, can I just please have his heart back? And then Calcifer's like, okay, and then they <laughs> shove it into his chest, and he wakes up, and then they fall in love. Yeah, it was like it just all happened so fast, and they wanted to put like a Disney spin on the ending. Yeah, like I was just like, we spent this whole time. It's a long movie. It's like two hours. Um, we spent this whole time kind of building up to these things, and then it's like rapid fire. Just like like you said, like loose ends are tied up. Like everything's just neatly wrapped in a bow, and boom, the ending hits. And I'm like, whoa! Like, hang on a second. I wanted to see a little more um, of that victory at the end. Like when yeah. everything is you know coming together and everyone's in a good place. I wanted to see more of that and have a chance to celebrate it. But you don't really get that chance. And I get that, like, with this ending, the whole point of it is to show, again, the folly of these kingdoms engaging in war in the first place and how it's affected all of these characters. But it's hard to, to accept that messaging when it seems to get lost with how quickly everything wraps up in these, like, basically like five minutes when you had a whole hour and, and, and 50 building up to this moment and then for it to just be like to, to happen in the blink of an eye like that's how quickly this conflict wraps up it's like they realized they were reaching like the two hour mark with the, the runtime of the film and they're like okay let's just put something together but, I mean, I'm I'm happy with the way that it ends. I'm glad that it's a happy ending. I'm glad mm-hmm. that Hal has his heart back and the contract is broken. I'm happy that Sophie was able to overcome the curse and that they like fall in love. We actually get to see them kiss. I'm like, damn, okay, so they're canon. That's great. Um, but yeah, I I kind of wish more time was spent on that ending. Like I just I wanted a little bit more time to just you know process everything and feel happy about the way it concluded. Yeah, and just. 
let characters have more of their moments to, and let that sink in. I think that my favorite part, like my favorite storyline or story beat throughout this is um, just Howl in general. I I know I like Howl. I get it. But I, I really do genuinely like the part of Howl that is struggling. I, you know, if you take the eccentric part of him and put that to the side, everything else that you have about Howl is really interesting. The fact that he is dedicating himself to stopping this war, despite being called upon by each of the participating kingdoms in this war to help and, and aid their side. He avoids that at all costs because he doesn't want to get involved. Mm-hmm. Um, he avoids the wicked, the witch, sorry, I'm going to keep doing it, <laughs> the witch of the waste um, because I, I think it's honestly because she has the potential to put a pause on his his plan to stop the war. Like if he had to deal with her, he wouldn't be able to dedicate his time and resources to stopping the war. That's kind of what I saw it as. Um, same with Solomon. Like sh- she's very capable. She's the one that trained him for a long time. And sure, Hal calls himself a coward in wanting Sophie to speak to them on his behalf. But again, I also wonder if it's just because he needs to be careful about what he's doing because if anything gets in his way, he's wasting time that could be spent saving these people who are going to die in this war. Yeah, I think that was one of my favorite aspects of the plot too is just Howl trying to carefully navigate through these turbulent times um, and then him having, again, this this sort of free-spirited nature to go hand-in-hand with his own ideals and his own principles against what is happening in this in this conflict but not making sure he's not losing himself in the process by becoming this monster while trying to save others i thought that was a really interesting thing well i kind of i i kind of disagree that it's him not trying to lose himself i think he doesn't care if he loses himself as long as he's able to stop the Mm. war because calcifer warns him like if you keep going down this path you're not going to be able to go back Mm-hmm. And he's like, that's fine. Like, I, I'll, I'm going to keep going down this road because I'll do what it takes to stop this war. It's pointless. I don't agree with it. People are dying. And so I found that to be incredibly selfless about Hal, who, again, on the surface appears to be a little more self-centered, a little more vain. But truly, he's not. He's not that mm. kind of person. And he's willing to lose his entire being, which he almost does twice. There's that moment where he comes back and he's like hiding in a cave in in yeah. the castle until Sophie says like I love you and then the very end where he's like on the brink of turning into this monster until Sophie kisses him um and is able to save him that way like he he pushed himself to the limit twice in this movie if not more and in that sense it's like Sophie who quite literally and also just metaphorically gives him his heart back in order for him to to stay his human self right? like even though he's doing all these selfless things and he doesn't care what the cost is. Um, I think her being his sort of saving grace kind of ties everything together with their story. So a lot of like romantic closure there. I just wish it was a little bit more fleshed out between the two of them. So do I, but okay. So now I have another question. Um, The, uh, the moment where Sophie goes to the door and sees Howell's past, 
which is like very much a Suzume moment. <laughs> for anyone who's Interstellar watched Interstellar moment too. Yeah, and for anyone who's watched Interstellar, anyone who's watched Suzume, that that whole plot point may seem very familiar. Um, but I didn't understand that. So she goes to the door and then she's in his past and she sees what's going on. She sees the moment that he made the contract with Calcifer and calls out to him. But what did that do other than, I guess, uh, uh, like Howell seeing her in that moment? I would be like, who's that chick? And then she like disappears <laughs> and he's like, okay, and then doesn't see her again for many years. Maybe that was the catalyst for him running into her in her hometown. Oh, okay. Yeah, I didn't think about that. Mm -hmm. He probably saw her and was like, hey, wait a minute. I saw you when I was a kid. Yeah. Going back to the idea that he feels like Sophie might be his saving grace um, outside of having this, like, magical contract because who knows where where that will lead him i mean we see clearly like it it could lead him into becoming a monster but sophie is sort of the check against that okay that makes more sense because i was kind of wondering like why is she seeing this what does this do for howl other than him looking really confused in that moment (laughs) when he sees her calling out to him (laughs) yeah last aspects i wanted to touch upon very briefly are just animation and music which i know we kind of talked about in our opening um the other thing i want to say with about the animation is i i love that there was such a vibrancy of color and architecture in this film especially in the opening scene which i think you said reminded you of like the hunchback of notre dame absolutely it did yeah, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> like, like the the, the topsy-turvy day scene or yeah. everything leading up to it <laughs> Uh, I think this is probably the most colorful I've seen of a Studio Ghibli film of the f- movies that we've seen. And that was such a pleasant thing to look at, especially also in contrast to, again, you have you have these this beautiful, you know, I called it French steampunk town, uh, and then Howl's castle itself with all of its intricacies. And then you have these like hulking, uh, flying uh, military craft that just, looks so cold and commanding i think there was reason for that with again uh miyazaki having this anti-war stance and also him kind of having this critique of like how like modern styles maybe modern architecture how in or not is it impersonal how impersonal it feels compared to all like these lush natural landscapes like we see in a uh, hollow summer home or with these beautiful French steampunk towns. Yeah. I thought the environments were just absolute eye candy. I just loved the world of Howl's moving castle. So, so much. It was just fun. It was addicting. It was um, at times very scary. Like if you think about what you see during the war, the bombings, the flames, all mm-hmm. of that, you don't see anything overly grotesque, but you just know, and it's, it, you just know what's going on and they keep the environment incredibly dark around that literally the only thing that lights up that space are the flames of war and i thought that was such a smart choice because that's completely opposite of what we're getting in most of the other scenes the most of the other environments so it just hits you that much harder 
you know, I, I can't stop heaping praises on how mesmerized I was with seeing the way that Howl's Castle moves, being part CGI and part kind of 2D animation. I think my only, I think the only downside with with the castle is I feel like we only see basically two rooms in this castle, even yeah. though it it has all of these separate components to it. Uh, but yeah, you're limited to the that living area space, may, uh, maybe the upstairs bathroom, and I know there was like that random cavern and Howl's bedroom. So there are a couple other spots, but you never really get a sense of the castle's majesty in the interior uh, as compared to the exterior. Lastly, music. Again, the only thing I really want to touch upon is that, that song that was ingrained in my head from my days at the music school when I was younger. Uh, it's by Joe Hisaishi, who's the same... Or he was a longtime collaborator with Miyazaki um, on the musical side. Um, I think the track that everyone is most familiar with, with that that melody, is the merry-go-round of life, which I feel like that melody played almost nonstop through this film. It did, yeah. <laughs> and you know, there are variations of it, which kind of mixes up the the flavor of the music. But um, sometimes it just kind of felt like ad nauseum for them to like repeat this motif over and over again. Again, I think the, the melody is beautiful, but it also just felt very overused at times in this film. I really enjoyed the music. I, I think it's it's a perfect match for the world and it was um, it was nice to listen to. I don't think it was the most... Um, how do I describe it? Like the most amazing music of Studio Ghibli films. I feel like some of the other films have more um, varied and more like grand songs um, that they offer. But I think the music was still absolutely solid in this film. I'll say, I, I'll say that this soundtrack probably sticks out the most to me um, compared to the other Ghibli films. But I get, it's probably just because that, that, that piano melody is stuck in my head. So, and that brings us to our final thoughts for Howl's Moving Castle. So, how many Home for the Howl-a-days out of 10 would you give this film? I would give it a solid 8 out of 10. I, so, I'll be honest, I wanted so bad to really like this movie, like, the most of all the Ghibli films, just because I felt like, from what I knew about the film and, and seeing images and clips I felt like this was going to be the one Miyazaki film that like connected with me the most but I still think the one that I I love the most is uh Spirited Away so I I think I'm not trying to be disappointed by the movie by having like the these expectations going into it but I think it just more so surprised me that it didn't connect with me the way I expected it to. But with that said, I still really liked it. I love how I think he's got to be one of my favorite Ghibli characters um, that I've seen so far. Um, already said very many times that uh, I really enjoyed the the world, the environment, um, and just the, the color scheme of everything. Um, but with Howl's Moving Castle, there's moments that I wish things were just fleshed out a little bit more, that I wish um, things were 
you know, explained or connected a little bit better um, so that I didn't feel like I'm having to play catch up throughout the film to try and understand what's going on. However, I still think it's a really beautiful story with really powerful messaging. I am very happy that there is a romance, albeit a very quick developing one, um, where we actually see the couple become canon at the end of the film and they're together. That's awesome. I love the characters, even though some of the characters just didn't have a lot going on with them. Like, I thought Marco was super fucking cute. I love Turnip, another really cute character. Uh, the Witch of the Waste freaked me out in, like, a good way. I found her really uncomfortable to watch, but I enjoyed her character so much. I think she added, like, this very mischievous, mysterious, and, like, comedic, you know, aspect to the movie. And Hal's just, Hal's great. I really like him. See, I'm, I'm kind of conflicted at times. Like, I, I feel like I enjoyed the movie more like a seven, seven and a half out of 10. But I think the movie itself is definitely in like the eight out of 10 range because there's so much care put into it, even if maybe the story doesn't play out as cohesively as I would have liked. Um, I think this is a movie that I, I would watch again just because I, I like watching Howl and I like seeing his journey. Um, Sophie, I understand that her, her point is to be more of a simple, a simplistic character that is juxtaposed with, with Howl's like crazy nature, but I don't know, Howl steals the show. I, I, he's all, all I wanted to watch for most of the film. Um, so I would revisit this just to see him and to see that world one more time. But what about you? I too would give Howl's Moving Castle an eight out of 10. Uh, I know we didn't touch upon how this movie probably has a sense of nostalgia for a lot of Ghibli fans but for me as with something like Guren Lagan there is no nostalgic lens through which I can view this film and so in my objectively subjective opinion I would say that Howl's Moving Castle is overall a decent film I did find myself more engaged in the plot of this movie compared to other Miyazaki films that we've previously watched. And maybe that's due to it being an adaptation of a piece of fictional plot-driven work, which is, I feel, is somewhat of a break from the Ghibli formula. However, I can't help but think that parts of this film feel a little bit derivative of Princess Mononoke before it, and while it addresses lofty themes like military conflict, the power of compassion, and moral ambiguity, these themes never feel fully developed or fully fleshed out, especially in Howell's case. And the ending, similarly, is too neatly tied up to feel earned, which are similar to things that, again, I feel were found in Princess Mononoke, but I think that film had a slightly better edge in presenting these ideas and narratives. Nevertheless, I cannot deny that the Studio Ghibli seal of quality is fully intact in this film, from its animation, especially in regards to Howl's Own Castle, to its musical score, to its voice cast, which still makes this movie worthy to be deemed a classic in the kingdom of anime films. And... I too would love to rewatch this film. Maybe a second rewatch will make me appreciate the themes and the story more. Maybe I'll see things that I didn't see previously. But also, I would probably watch it 
in its dubbed version just so I can hear Christian Bale do the pre the pre Dark Knight Batman voice with Howell's character. Yeah, I think I'd watch it dubbed as well. This might be the only Miyazaki film that I would want to watch dubbed just so that I can hear Christian Bale as well. Although I grew up watching Spirited Away dubbed. I just don't remember it. Yeah, I have no precedent. So uh, it, it, it's probably going to be like watching an entirely new film, but I think that's what makes it so thrilling. Well, whatever I can do to watch Hall again, that's that's fine by me. I get why people like him so much because I really enjoyed him as well. I liked Heen. Oh, the dog! <laughs> the dog was so. We didn't talk about the dog. Yeah, he the was my was favorite cute. character in this film. Yeah, he he was doing his best. Okay, he's tired. He's an old pup. <laughs> yeah, he was supposed to be a spy, but he just wanted to live his life. He's like, fuck that! I just want to be catered to and loved. <laughs> And with that, thank you guys as always for tuning in. Hope you enjoyed our review of Howl's Moving Castle. And make sure to subscribe to Strictly Anime on your favorite podcast service. Join our Discord to chat with us. Follow us on Instagram at the Strictly Series, on Twitter or X or whatever at Strictly Series, and check out our website, thestrictlyseries.com. If you'd like to support the show, then head over to patreon.com slash the Strictly Series. And tune into Strictly JoJo, our other podcast dedicated to JoJo's Bizarre Adventure. All links are in the description. Thank you so much for listening. And as always, stay safe, stay healthy, stay weeb.